Amen. Take a seat, grab a Bible. If you don't have one with you, Ephesians chapter 6 is our text tonight. Um, If you need a Bible, put your hand up. Someone from our host team will find you one. You might have it on your phone as an app. Turn that on. That's you. We're starting a new uh, series tonight called The God I Don't Understand. It's part of this year-long project we have here called The Year of Biblical Literacy, which takes us right through to September. This is a four-week block where we're delving into just some of the, sto- uh, some of the questions that, that we have, if we're honest, as the people of God. We're going to look at things like suffering. We're going to look at why on earth God seems to be so violent in the Old Testament. Has it ever bothered you? Hello? Yeah, just checking you're still here. Uh, We're going to look at how the story ends. Heaven, hell, the lamb wins. And tonight we're talking about evil. The problem, the reality of evil. To be honest with you, it's a long, uh, it's a series that could have been a lot longer. There's a whole load of questions I had that I was kind of putting out there for consideration. Like, why can Christians be so weird? Um... (laughs) That got rejected. That might find its way into another series. Um, uh, uh, Why is it that we're really good at looking the part and saying the right things on a Sunday, but really pants on a Monday at living it out? That might also, that could be a whole series on its own, right? Um, So tonight it's evil, and uh, we're talking about uh, that, and Ephesians 6. This is the last kind of bit of a letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. Uh, well-known text to some of you. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from his gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all saints. Sorry, all the saints. Uh, I like doing that. That's fun. Just checking who's listening. Great. It's both. Um, I want to suggest to you as my starting point tonight that everybody, regardless of what they believe about God, has a problem with evil and the consequences of that which is suffering. Everyone has a problem with it. For most people it's a practical one. They experience the reality of that, the implications of that for their life. Many wouldn't realise necessarily that what they're coming up against are the consequences of evil and sin in the world. They just experience it as life being difficult. Life being hard, life being unfair. Have you noticed that life's hard and unfair? That bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Most people don't necessarily have a framework for making sense of it that I think the scriptures give us. But nonetheless, that is a problem for people. We've got very good in our 21st century Christian culture at masking it. 
which is no different really to how the most of the world around us copes. We're very good at putting on the Christian face, aren't we? We're very good at putting on a nice face for those people we meet at work or at college or down the street or even our family. When in reality, often we can be just hanging in there. Like some weeks I look out and I go, it's a minor miracle you're even here today because I know what's going on in your life and it's horrendous. And there are other weeks where I just want to go and shake some of us and go, wake up! (laughs) Be real! Uh, Whatever uh, you think of this, just go and look at the headlines. Just pick up the newspaper, flick through it, you'll see evil. Not necessarily in your face explicit evil, but you'll see the evidence of a broken world of sin and evil and the suffering and pain that brings to people. You'll see it. You actually don't even have to read the newspaper. Just walk down Broad Street and the High Street on any given day in this city and look at people who walk past you. You will see pain and brokenness on their faces. Watch the way people interact with one another. Watch how people interact with their kids. It's just a broken, messed up, screwy world. It's there in our face. We have these cultural narratives, don't we, that help us make sense of our experience. I was um, saying this this morning, what what we do every um, Friday or Saturday, depends on our schedule as a family, is we have what we call pizza movie night, which is what it says on the tin, really. We make pizza, we sit on the floor with the kids and we watch a movie together. It's epic, I love it. And uh, last night we watched Moana. Anyone seen Moana, the latest, one of the latest Disney, I'm not sure it was a hit, but it was a good movie. Sam's very excited. He's like, yeah, I saw that one in Canterbury with Kezia. Uh, (laughs) Not with you. Oh, did you take yourself off on your own? Did you? He bunked a lecture. Um, What did he say? Yeah. And uh, in Moana, if you don't know the story, it's this girl from a sort of Fijian type island who works with Maui, the demigod, to redeem the creation that's become thwarted because of evil powers. And so you have the classic narrative of little human taking on all the powers of evil and against the odds conquering. Those narratives define and shape culture. They've defined and shaped culture ever since we've written things down. That's what Genesis is in part. One of those narratives, right? Um, and, and so it's all around us. But, but here's the thing. Most people watching films like Moana, and it's the same in things like Frozen and all of that stuff, most people out there, they, they wouldn't believe literally in evil. They would just kind of recognise it as a, a useful narrative tool. It's a, it's a classic tool of literature and stories. It's Shakespearean. He has it too. It's like, that's how we make sense of the world. It's this thing that prods us to bring out the inner goodness. They wouldn't believe that there's literally evil in the world. And so we end up sort of making a bit of a mockery of it. I was um, explaining to my kids uh, what I was teaching on today. They were asking me. Some of you know our kids, 10, uh, 8 and nearly 6. And our youngest, uh, Lucia, who's 6 next week, uh, she's very good at the evil voice. So she's basically spent the last 36 hours walking around the house going, And every time she sees me, Daddy, So I, I was tempted to get you all to practice, but I won't. But, um, but in her little world, it's like, it's not real. And I don't want to kind of tell her yet that it's real, because she's innocent and six, but, but there'll come a day when she'll realise, no, it's real. We live in a culture that just doesn't believe it's real. Think about Halloween. H- Halloween historically used to be uh, this thing that, that Christians did, 
to mock evil, confident in the resurrection hope. And so on the night before All Hallows Day, the day where we celebrate and, you know, that we will be risen to new life because Jesus is already risen to new life, that actually sin and death have been conquered, they would dress up and mock evil. And so it would be this kind of like mocking exercise. <laughs> now what's happened, this is a whole load of people who have no idea that it's that, and they dress up in all this sort of weird stuff because the shops tell us to, and they go out and, and they're actually, inadvertently, they're actually celebrating evil. <laughs> And inadvertently, their kids are celebrating evil. Now, don't think for one minute, I, I, I think Christians, we should be in the mix of that, but we need to redeem it. We need to take it back. We need to take it back for what it is, not just hide away in our nice little Christian bubbles and pretend no one knocked on the door. We need to engage with it, but, but it just shows you how far we've come. That we just think, no, that, we're 21st century, right? Like, seriously. But I've prayed for people who've been demonised. I've confronted evil in the face. I, 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 was, I forgot to say this this morning, but I remember vividly a moment when we lived in Peckham in South East London. I'd been teaching on an alpha course on, and the session was on how to resist evil. And I was walking home to our house and we were in the sort of not quite so dangerous bit of Peckham. And uh, it wasn't kind of, I'd never had an issue before. And I remember walking home and realised that behind me there was a man throwing bricks at me. And what he kept saying is, I see you, Jesus. And he kept throwing bricks at me and he was literally foaming at the mouth. And he had no fear of all these cars coming at him and anything. So I ran in to hide and in the nearest pub I could find, which happens to be the Nag's Head, uh, if you know Old New Fools and Horses, which is set in Peckham. And, and literally this guy was throwing bricks at the window. They had to call the police. Like it's, I've seen it. Some of you have seen it. Abby's just come back from ministry tripping Columbia. She's got some stories. Okay, it's real. So it's a problem. And I want to suggest to you that it's more than just a practical problem for Christians. It should also cause us to think. It's a theoretical problem, the reality and existence of evil. Because actually we believe certain things about God and the world and they seem to be at odds if, we're not, if we don't think it through with the reality of evil and suffering. We should be asking ourselves questions like, how do I actually explain the reality of evil? Why does it exist? Where did it come from? I hope you're asking those questions. Interestingly, it's not a problem for polytheistic religions. That's uh, religions that have a worldview where there are many gods. Because they would say, well, yeah, some of the gods are good and some of them are evil. But we're just caught up in this battle between them all. It's not a problem for what they call monistic religions, like Hinduism and Buddhism. For them, the idea that there's evil, actually they'd say, no, it's not true, it's an illusion. You just don't yet see clearly enough because you don't have enough karma. And so they would just dismiss it as non-existent. And interestingly, it's not a theoretical problem for atheists. For them... Uh, the worldview of an atheist, evil's explained away as simply evidence that the world's broken uh, because we haven't fixed it yet, because human evolution's not achieved the zenith that it needs to if it's going to achieve that. Now, ironically, it's the reality of goodness in the world that's more of a theoretical problem to an atheist than the presence of evil. But for you and I, evil is a theoretical problem. It's a problem because we believe that there's one living God. 
the creator of the whole universe, who is loving, good, omnipotent, that means all-powerful, and sovereign over all that happens, right? That's what we believe, isn't it? Amen? Amen. It's okay. And, and if this is true, then like, how do we deal with this? Well, what the scriptures paint is a picture for us of, uh, essentially, th- this idea that we are caught, actually, in this cosmic battle that's going on, it's been going on well before Genesis happens. Genesis 3, sorry, which we'll come to in a moment. We're caught up in this battle between good and evil. We can't actually see it because as the scriptures say, 1 Corinthians 15, I think it is, somewhere like that, the unseen realities are more more real. C.S. Lewis says, if only we could peel back the curtain and see what's really going on behind the scenes of which we're just a stage and we're caught up in. But we can't. We can't often see it. Occasionally it confronts us in the face. But most of the time we experience it in other ways. And actually this isn't a new problem. It's a problem that's vexed thinkers for a long, long time. This is Epicurus. Uh, famous really for his love of food. Um, but he also was quite wise. And he asked this question. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent or powerful. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent. He's not good. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God at all? That's the philosophical problem. It's a well-trodden dilemma. It's a question that your friends, family, neighbours and colleagues will have. It'll be one of the major oppositions you come up against when you explore faith with people who don't yet share it with you. They'll say, but hang on a minute. How can I believe in a God that you say is loving and kind and powerful when clearly the world's screwed up and people are suffering? The accusation against Christian belief at this point goes something like this. Either God is omnipotent so he could prevent all evil and suffering but since he obviously doesn't He can't be loving. Or, God is loving and longs to prevent all evil and suffering if only he could. But he can't. In which case, he can't be omnipotent. And yet, actually for us, the Bible affirms that he is both all-loving and all-powerful. And I want to try and help you see that a little bit tonight. Think of it as a primer on the Christian theology of evil. It's not enough really it could be a whole teaching series in and of itself but hopefully I'll give you something to think about Uh, so back to Ephesians 6 notice what Paul says he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms like if you're married like your marriage partner is not the enemy I, I, I know that there are times where they feel like a challenge. Your, your parents aren't the enemy. Your housemates aren't the enemy. Your kids aren't the enemy. The enemy, the, the, the opposition, that which we're battling is the powers of the dark world. The unseen spiritual forces that are at work. That's what we're battling. Now what you need to know is that the scriptures are uh, really less concerned with explaining the origins of evil and much more focused on documenting the God who goes about bringing an end to it. 
In part, this is a story of how God acts decisively to eradicate evil from the world. We'll come to that in a moment. But he's made it possible through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But, but actually, we need to recognise the scriptures don't tell us everything. There's some mystery in this. We have to live with that. The ultimate origin of evil is not explained in the Bible. And that's okay, actually. That's actually okay. So I want to do two things. I want to talk a little bit about the reality of evil and then say something about the defeat of evil. Now, interestingly, lots of theologians, they they make a distinction between different kinds of evil. They'll talk about something called natural evil, and that is the suffering that appears to be part of life on earth in a broken creation uh, that's unrelated to human cause. Okay, So things like earthquakes, tsunamis, all those sorts of things. Then there's moral evil, which is suffering and pain that we find in the world, and actually we each experience that is either directly caused by one human or humans to another, or uh, indirectly caused by that, because of our sin and unbrokenness. We hurt one another. We actually perpetuate evil. We're complicit at times in that. This is evil that we see in things said and done, perpetrated by others, caused by human actions. Sometimes there's a direct link between our sin and someone else's suffering. Let's take, for example, things like domestic violence and abuse, child cruelty, neglect. Like, there's a direct link, right? It's obvious. Often we suffer some of the consequences of our own decisions, right? Because at times we can just be stupid. But actually a huge amount of suffering in the world is caused indirectly by our sin and our brokenness and our complicitness in the powers of evil that invade through all of those things to get to the lives of other people. And we need to own up to that and we're going to come to that in a moment. The third and final kind of evil that theologians talk about is spiritual evil, for want of a better phrase. That which the evil one, or the Satan, which we'll come to again in a moment as well, does. Directly. Spiritual attack. The obvious in-your-face evidence of a spiritual realm that is ugly at times. The Bible speaks of evil spiritual forces that invade and exploit and amplify human wickedness. That directly attack those made in the image of God. Everybody. It's not just Christians that experience spiritual attack and opposition, it's everybody. It's just that we have a language and a framework for making sense of our experience. And the instinctive human reaction, regardless of your worldview, should be to say, how can this be? Like, if you ever kind of get to the place where you're accepting of it, then, then I'm sorry, you're missing something. Like, it should offend us. It's not what God has for us. Our intrinsic human nature knows that. I was chatting to a friend of ours over the weekend, not a Christian, who just said, you know, I, I, I can't get my head around, I can't cope with the reality of pain in the world. I was like, you're not meant to. <laughs> That's good. The minute you cope with it, then you've, you've lost some of your compassion, your empathy. And as Christians, we should have a, a bigger version of that question. We should be saying, God, why do you allow such suffering? Why? I believe you're all loving and powerful. Why? Why are people still struggling? Why? And again, if you're not asking that question, then... Like, with all due respect, I'd say go check how soft your heart is. 
the inherent assumption here is that if, we, if God was really loving and kind and good, he wouldn't allow it to happen. And I get that. I think that's a valid posture. But do you know what? I, as I thought about this, I, I actually think he might have a good case for asking us some questions. Like, he, he might say, well, excuse me, but um, if we're talking here about who allows what... Let me point out that thousands of children are dying every minute of preventable diseases, that you have the means, but obviously not the will, to stop. How do you allow that? Or he might say, there are millions in your world who are slowly dying of starvation while some of you are killing yourselves with gluttony. How can you allow such suffering? I've got a long list of these. I won't read them all. Or he might say there are more people in slavery now than in the worst days of the historic slave trade. How can you allow that? Actually, as you've heard, we don't want to allow that. Finally, he he might say there are millions upon millions of people living as refugees on the knife edge of human existence because of interminable wars that you indulge in out of selfishness, greed, ambition and lying hypocrisy. And you not only allow this, but you collude in it, you fuel it. You profit from it. He's got a good case, right? We are complicit at times in perpetuating evil, sin and suffering. The vast bulk of human pain and suffering in this world is the direct result or indirect result of our human sin and brokenness, which the evil one and the spiritual powers of evil use to perpetuate their end game, which is the destruction of God's good creation. They don't need much of their own initiative because we do a lot of it for them. Like if you're not consciously leaning into the ways of God, then often you're subconsciously, unwittingly complicit. That's heavy stuff, but that's the truth, man. How you love the person in front of you is either going to usher in good or not. We've got a lot to think about. And the danger for us is that when we think about evil, is we, we over-spiritualise it and we say it's all just spiritual evil. That stuff that the weird guy in the, you know, the red tights and the pitchfork, Satan, the Man United fan, he comes and he's like, it's all him and we just all need to hide from that. No! The scriptures don't allow us to do that. They say you're part of the problem. And those who follow Jesus are called to be part of the solution. We'll come back to that in a moment. A question we should have, of course, then, okay, is, okay, God, fine, that's the reality of our world. Where did evil come from? How do we make sense of that? I hope that's a question for you. Genesis 3 describes in this profoundly simple story, really, a beautiful story, uh, how evil came into the world. It doesn't explain why, and it doesn't explain the origins of it, but it explains how it came into the world. And uh, what we find is that Clearly something's happened earlier in the story. There's already evil in the world. It breaks into God's good creation in the garden. And Adam and Eve, by rejecting what God offers, this willful rejection of God's authority, this distrust of God's goodness, this disobedience of God's commands, they find themselves thrown out of the garden and actually suddenly um, very vulnerable to the schemes of the evil one. And caught up now in this cosmic battle and being used by him to uh, attack creation. And so Genesis 3 is this um, 
little story within what's called a, a true myth or, or an, a creation narrative that's written in the form of true myth, i.e. its truth communicated through a story. Okay? We looked at this before Christmas, if you were around, when we did that God's unfolding story, do you remember? This idea that it's a kind of a way of communicating truth. Jesus does something similar with parables. So don't worry too much about the, the, the literary stuff. Focus in on what it's telling us. That's the key with Genesis. Remember, it doesn't tell us where evil came from at this point, but it does describe the entry of sin and evil into human life and experience. For what it's worth, I don't think God wants us to fully understand. I actually don't think God wants us to fully see. Like, there are things I don't let my kids see. They're not allowed to watch movies that they're not old enough for. I don't want them to see it. I protect them from that. And even then, we sit down and watch the film with them. I want to coach them through it. But I, I think there's a whole lot of stuff that we'll never see. Because it makes no sense. God doesn't want us to understand. He wants us to resist it and partner with him in eradicating it. He doesn't want us to understand. Because the minute we understand it, we start to rationalise it and tolerate it. And we can't do that. Now, it's clear in Genesis 3 that there's a cosmic heavenly war already in progress. Okay, so, um, oh, hang on, yeah, we'll come to that in a moment. So, so sorry. Uh, so it's a bit like Star Wars. I've been teaching my kids the Force and the way of the Force. Um, it's an important educational process. Don't laugh. This is really, really important. And um, although I think my wife slightly wishes I hadn't, because Lucia thinks she is a Jedi. But anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, so, so, so if you know Star Wars, it's the first film was Episode Four, A New Hope. And if you start watching Episode Four, A New Hope, you start reading those yellow lines that come up the screen, you know, with the music. And about four lines in, you're like, wait, hang on a minute. Stop! What's already happened? Because it says there's this battle that's been going on, and then there's these Jedis, and then there's this... And you're like, something's already going down here. Genesis 3 is a bit like that. We find ourselves in a story all of a sudden that has actually been going on for a while. Uh, Christopher Wright, who is brilliant, says this. Evil seems to explode into the biblical narrative. Unannounced, already formed, without explanation or rationale. We found ourselves in this story. Here we go. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That's the first clue as to where evil comes from, what evil is. We're not told how the snake got into the garden. We're not told why he's come into the garden. But we are to understand that he's come from outside the garden. Now if you remember the teaching series before Christmas, we talked about this thing called Toho Vohu. Do you remember that? The uncreated watery chaos, the raw materials of creation that God was going to do something with. And uh, within the biblical worldview, the seas, the waters, were symbolic of chaos, and that's where evil resided. And sea monsters and snakes and mm, things like that, they're all like, they're personifications of evil. So the snake comes from the watery chaos. He finds himself into the garden. He's an unwelcome intruder in the garden. He's not meant to be there. Adam and Eve's job is to guard and steward the garden, so how have they let him in in the first place? Whole other sermon. But here he is, and he invades the garden, and he invades the story, because he's inconsistent with the narrative where that was going. He takes the story in a different direction at 
causes Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And so we need to be really clear here. The Bible shows that there is some form of evil that's personified. And I don't know what you think of that, but maybe it just helps us get our head around it. But the reality is that the forces of evil have invaded the narrative, the, the, the good creation of God, and brought corruption. The Bible's clear that Satan, the Satan, is clever, he's subtle, he's deceitful, but he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. The devil is a created being and so ultimately is subject to God's authority and his ultimate control. In other words, whilst we take him seriously, let's not dignify him with greater reality and power than is appropriate. Again, Christopher Wright, he says this, There is no hint whatsoever in the Bible that Satan is a person to be loved, pitied, prayed for or redeemed. On the contrary, Satan is portrayed as totally malevolent, relentlessly hostile to all that God is and does, a liar and a murderer through and through, implacably violent, mercilessly cruel, perpetually deceptive, distorting, destructive, deadly and doomed. (laughs) People say to me, do you really believe in the devil? I say, yeah, I do. I do. I believe in evil. I believe in the powers of evil. I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I've come under huge attack and oppression. I've seen it. It's horrendous. And if you haven't, be thankful for that. But do you know what I say? I say, I'm never going to do anything to concede to him power and authority in my life and my, my family beyond that which he already has. I'm determined that I'll live in such a way that actually, no, no. So every night before I go to sleep, I go into my children's rooms and I pray protection over them from the evil one. I don't want them to have night terrors. (coughs) I don't want them to be oppressed in the night. I want them to know that angels guard our house. I believe that. My kids have seen angels. And when they're three and they say, Mum, there was this really tall man in my bedroom last night. He was like, he was like that under the ceiling because he didn't quite fit. And we're like, describe him. And they're like, well, he was big and white and strong and kind and he talked to me. When they're three and they tell you that, then <laughs> it's an angel. My kids have seen angels. I've never seen an angel. Maybe I did when I was three. Anyone else seen an angel? Yeah, look, they're real. And here's the deal, we're called to accept the reality of evil, as in it's a real thing. But we're actually called to to not accept it. We're we're called as God's people to resist it. We can't tolerate it. It has to offend us. Our calls to resist. So notice this in 1 Peter your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour resist him standing firm in the faith it's captured in the baptism liturgy we did it recently with Amal and a few others who else was baptised that night yeah and there was a question we asked you guys which was do you renounce the devil and all his works yes yes I do I'm on his side now I'm not going to be complicit in any of that. We haven't got time tonight to go into this, but, but it's not just resisting. It's, it's more than that, I would suggest. It's protesting. It's lamenting. It's like sitting with people 
and, and just feeling the pain of their life that's representative of the pain in creation. It can't just be a theoretical thing we rationalise and go, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pray. Like, it should hurt us that people are hurting. Do you lament over the state of our nation? You should. So the reality of evil is there. The good news, because that's pretty depressing, right? The good news is evil is going to be fully eradicated from God's good creation. Uh, I'll say a little bit less about this because Owen's going to pick this up at the end of this teaching series. But but I want to suggest to you that uh, the scriptures are full of hope and promise for us in this area. Genesis 3, right through to the end of the book, is in part the account of God's plan to defeat evil, to rid his whole creation of it forever. And at the centre of this plan is Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, who hangs on a cross in our place. The sinless saviour is substituted for us. He conquers sin and death by dying uh, dying to it but being raised to new life by God's power that's the central and decisive moment of the victory of God over evil and it's the guarantee that ultimately will be destroyed Tom Wright puts it like this he says we are committed within the worldview generated by the gospel of Jesus to affirming that evil will finally be conquered will be done away Jesus went to the cross and he took upon him the consequences of sin and suffering. He took on the entire forces of evil. And for three days it looks like they've won out, right? The earth goes dark. The the people who crucify him, as he dies, they say, truly this was the Son of God. It's like, in the message it should say, oh nuts, what have we done? That's what's happening there. But three days later... Up from the grave victorious he rises. Sin has been defeated. Death has been conquered. And he begins to bring about new creation life. He begins to undo all the damage of pain and sin and suffering. And he says to you and to me, will you partner with me in that? That's the task of the church. Join my team. And let's go. Let's do that. We'll come to that more in a moment. The New Testament's really clear that Jesus' primary agenda, among other things, was to disarm the powers of evil at war with God. Have a look at this. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Notice this, Acts 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Who else has he anointed with the Holy Spirit? It's not a trick question. It's like, yeah, us. Uh, he went around doing good. Who else is meant to go around doing good? Us. You got it. Well done. Healing all who were under the power of the devil. We do the same things in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. We have authority over evil. We stand there and we say, in the name of Jesus, no. In the name of Jesus, freedom. And sometimes we see extraordinary things happen. Sometimes we don't. That's the whole of the sermon as well. But that's the task of the church. Why? Because that's what we're out working. 
Our horizon of hope is a day when there's no evil in the world. Everything has been put right and we work towards that. We don't wait for them. We don't go, oh, thank goodness, it's all going to be okay one day. We'll just endure a never-ending episode of EastEnders in our lives. God, no. We say, given that then, we're going to demand that it becomes a truth today. In faith. We're going to live in such a way that we outwork the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. For the sake of those we're sent to. For the sake of one another. For the sake of those entrusted to us. And it begins by saying, I will not be complicit in evil. My life must place me in the things of God. There's no room for anything that mars and scars the image of God in me. So I have to deal with my sin. I've got to deal with my porn addiction. I've got to deal with whatever it is that I struggle with. So that God can work in me and through me. That's not in my notes, I'm sure you can tell. (laughs) And we do that confident in a God who is both loving and powerful. One of, my, uh, one of the books I loved reading uh, as I was preparing this is by a French theologian, thankfully he writes in English, but, uh, called Henri Blocher. <laughs> uh, and he says, Scripture raises the triple affirmation that evil is evil, that the Lord is sovereign and that God is good. And he says that the danger for us is that we, as we grapple with this, is that we compromise on one or two of these things because it's too hard. So we say, well, there isn't really evil, or it's not that evil, or God isn't really sovereign, or he can't really be good. And he says, no. You want evidence that he's those things? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. The cross exposed the depths of evil, it crushes Jesus, the sinless one. The cross reveals the sovereignty of God who substitutes himself on the cross for us. He's able to take the sinful, broken intentions of humanity and turn them round for his redemptive purposes of love. It's extraordinary. Turns out he is all-powerful. He can do anything. Even with me. (laughs) Never mind Johnny. That's a totally bad joke. Um, Definitely with Johnny. He's amazing. And the cross expresses the goodness of God because he does it in love. It's mercy and grace. Jesus willingly went there. Os Guinness, I love this, he says, Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. Now we're nearly done. All of this makes possible the liberation of creation, the redemption of all things. And and as I said, Owen's going to take us to the end of the story in a couple of weeks' time. But it leaves us not only with this great hope, but with a great task. You know, in the middle of all our struggles now, as we confront evil, we cannot understand. We can confidently cry out to God, asking him to deliver us from evil. It's the Lord's Prayer, right? The cross and resurrection of Christ have accomplished it in history and guaranteed it for all eternity. And so we have faith to say, God... 
deliver us from evil. Deliver me and my family and my church and our city from evil. That's part of the task of the church on behalf of the world, is to come to God. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, um, oh sorry, he says in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. The word be strong in is like have big faith. Have big faith in God and in his power. Yes! If he can deliver Jesus from death, he can deliver you from evil. And if he can deliver me from evil, he can deliver the world from evil. And that's the call on the church, to pray, to act like that. Not just when you come on a Sunday, but every morning when you get up. Jesus, deliver me from evil today. Lead me not into temptation. Don't let me go back that way so that I've become complicit again in the evil forces at work in the world. No, deliver me from evil so that I can bear witness to you in the world today. But there's more than that, you see. There's work for us to do. The call of the gospel, gospel, I think, for the church, given this, is to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. It's to take up our cross. It's to deny ourselves. It's to serve sacrificially. It's to find pain and hurt and enter into it and accompany people in it until it hurts. Like it'll cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you socially. But like with all due respect, Jesus did that for you, so get over yourself. The phrase we've used here is this idea over the years, this idea of prophetic defiance. Like given everything, we're going to stand our ground and defiantly live differently into the world. And we're going to be prophetic in that because we're going to do it in such a way that we literally speak prophetically and we live prophetically so that the things of the kingdom can come into this world in and through us. That's what we're going to do. That's the task of the church. Defiant in the face of evil. How? I'll finish with this, but the answer is in Ephesians 6. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Again, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. How do you do it? Number one, you stand. You stand firm. You get up in the morning and you stand. You stand your ground. You stand against. You stand for. You stand with. You hold the line. You don't go there. And you do go there. There are times where we have to stand in front of someone and say to the evil one, no. And we do that confident because in front of us will stand Jesus. He's with us. Being a priest in the kingdom of God means we stand in the gap for the people who don't know that they're oppressed by evil and we say no more. That's what we're doing when we run our food bank. You know, we pray for them as they walk out the building because it's not just feeding them. We want to stand with them. We journey with them. So we stand, 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 stand. And second, we pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You pray. You pray. Not just when you get up. Not just when you go to bed. 
But every single time you see any evidence of evil in the world. My wife's amazing. Every time we hear a siren, she says, Oh Lord, save them. Keep them from death. Anoint the paramedics. It's amazing. It's just her mindset. Why? Because we pray in the spirit on all occasions. Because the world is corrupted by evil. And God says to you and to me, go. As people who have been delivered from evil. And usher in the things of the kingdom of God. Let's stand, shall we? And shall we pray?